On this edition of Geopolitics and Empire, we interview Professor Paul Robinson from the University of Ottawa, whose research includes Russian history and security and defense policy. He's written numerous books, the most recent of which is a biography on the Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich. He has a great blog where he posts very good articles at irrationality.wordpress.com. That's with two R's and two S's, irrationality. We will be discussing Putin, Trump, and the current state of U.S.-Russia relations. And it's a great pleasure to have you on, Professor Robinson. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, why don't we start with, uh, I guess, the most fun topic, the most controversial topic, the topic of President Putin. You recently wrote a book review on Russia without Putin, which tells us that every conversation about Russia need not revolve around Putin. However, I would like to discuss first both P Putin the individual and then the Russian state structure that lives on with or without Putin. So I guess the first question would be, you know, Putin has been de depicted in the West as the personification of evil. Hillary Clinton has called him Hitler, which is an immense diplomatic faux pas, in my opinion. Uh, there have been dozens, if not hundreds, of newspaper and magazine covers depicting Putin as Dr. Evil, as an octopus, as a bloody dictator. However, I think when you travel to Russia and speak to people from all walks of life, as I have, you will find that this is not quite the case, that, and that even people who dislike Putin himself prefer having him in power for now because they prefer stability. So for you as an academic uh, and an analyst, what are the most important points when discussing uh, Putin? I think the first thing to be aware of is that when one's thinking of uh, Russian foreign policy and also, of course, Russian domestic policy, uh, it's not all the product of, of one man and that uh, it's a product of, of many uh, social and political forces. And to a certain degree, Putin himself is, is a product of the system as much as a creator of this system. And that uh, were you to change the person in charge, it's unlikely that uh, particularly foreign policy, but also many domestic policies would, would change uh, very significantly. Uh, Putin is sometimes described in very you know, harsh language as sort of extremist, nationalist, and so on and so forth. But actually, uh, my own reading of this, and, and I'm, not, I'm not alone in this, is that as Russian politics goes, he, he's fairly much of a centrist, fairly much um, well aligned with, with the mass of, of public opinion. Indeed, his success, I think, is very much due to, to his ability to, to read where the mass of public opinion is going and to, to align himself uh, more or less with it. Therefore, if you were to have a, a, a different leader, he would probably be, uh, or she, um, would be forced in, in a very similar uh, direction because, you know, that is what, um, you know, Russian society as a whole is generally looking for. And what about the Putin that is depicted as someone who assassinates uh, every dissenter, critic, journalist, rogue politician, and, and so on? Well, I, I, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, I don't think one should be, you know, overly idealize the Russian state and, and, and consider that it's, you know, incapable of um, unpleasant actions, because I think that that's, that's not true. And, and um, you know, there are there are a number of cases, for instance, uh, the Litvinenko case and, and the Skripal poisoning in which, you know, there is certainly some, some good reason to to suspect the involvement of the Russian state in those particular killings and attempted killings. But that does not mean that, you know, every Russian who, who drops dead prematurely uh, has been murdered personally at the orders of, of Putin because we don't actually have any very good evidence of that. And if you look at um, many of the claims which are made about um, 
people having been killed at Putin's direct orders, but they, there really isn't very much evidence or all the evidence doesn't stack up. We saw this, for instance, recently in the case of Mr. Uh, Pierre Pelichny, who was a f- associate former of, I think, a Berezovsky. I, I can't remember the exact details. And, and he um, died while out jogging in, in the United Kingdom. And um, there was a lot of uh, suspicion that, you know, Putin had ordered his murder, but an inquest in in the United Kingdom just a couple of weeks ago uh, declared that there was absolutely no evidence of of foul play. So, yeah, I think you need to be very careful about a lot of these claims because, yes, I mean, while there is some evidence of of Russian state involvement in in one or two um, cases, there isn't in in the overwhelming majority of them. Um, And when one looks at things also such as, you know, murders of journalists, then actually many few, fewer journalists have been killed uh, under Putin in Russia than un, under Yeltsin. And those who have been killed, it tends to be, you know, related to organized crime and mafia and, and investigations into those kind of things. And you talked a bit about how the Russian state and, and the people kind of look for a certain direction, um, you know, based on the latest uh, blog post you wrote. Is there anything you'd like to add about the the Russian state and how it functions with or without Putin? Well, I think that you know the Russian state, like like all states, you know, makes policy due to um, a large variety of, of complex inputs and, and through a large variety of, of, of complex processes. I think that it's a very uh, imperfect system, and that you know many of the complaints which are made about it in that regard are, are not entirely un- unfounded. And that the Russian state, it certainly seems to be the central state, has rather limited control uh, over um, its own subordinates, particularly uh, in the peripheries. This has been a perpetual problem in, in Russian governance that, you know, the, the state in, in Moscow or St. Petersburg in, in previous times, you know, can issue all sorts of edicts. But there's no particular guarantee it has that things are going to be uh, done the way it wants to be done. Many problems in Russia are, are due to, you know, local abuses, which the state either is unable to stop or turns a blind eye to because of um, convenience and so on. But um, the problem is many, very often is, in my mind, it, it comes from a, a weak state rather than an overly powerful state. And what would you make of the recent um, news about the Ru- Russia changing, altering the constitution to allow Putin to remain beyond 2024? Well, I think that would be unwise. I, I, I do think that you know, I'm personally of the view that it would have been better for Putin and not to have stood for election in 2012, because I think a, a regular turnover of politicians is, is a good idea. And the personal dominance of Putin has a, um, I think, it has a negative effect on political competition in Russia because he's so dominant that, you know, anyone, anyone with political ambitions is is necessarily going to ally himself or herself with, with, with the party of power um, because, you know, it, it's, it's certainly going to win. Um, and therefore, that has an effect of, of stifling uh, competition within, within the system, which I don't think is a good thing. So I, I don't think it would be wise for, for Putin to stay on in, in any way after 2024. And if, if constitutions are things you can just change for personal convenience, then uh, that's not a very encouraging sign. So um, I would be thoroughly against that kind of thing. And you've recently written about uh, Russiagate, uh, this idea of uh, Russia meddling in U.S. elections and Trump being a, a, a Russian agent. And I believe you titled your blog post uh, Trump as the worst secret agent ever. Uh, and I mean, for, from my perspective, if you look at things, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen 
as well. And if you look at things kind of objectively, it seems the, alle the, the allegations don't seem, well, so far haven't produced very much uh, evidence. And so what's your comment on, on the whole fiasco that's going on right now in the U.S. regarding this scandal? Well, I think there's two things need to be differentiated here. The first is, is so-called Russian interference, and the second is, is collusion, because they're, they're, they're different things, um, although it's some to be related. Politically speaking, the, the latter collusion is, is a far more serious allegation um, against Trump than, than interference. Um, if the Russians were interfering in, in um, American electoral processes, but Trump had nothing to do with it, then that's not a reason to, to be attacking Trump. The only reason to attack Trump is, is this idea that he was somehow in cahoots with the Russians, that he, he um, struck some sort of deal with them whereby the, the Russians would help him in return for which he promised them something rather we don't know exactly what. Now, in, in terms of uh, evidence of, of interference, some has, has been produced in terms of, you know, internet trolls, uh, Facebook ads, um, and so on and so forth. Personally, I don't think it adds up to very much. Um, if really American democracy is so fragile that you know um, a handful of advertisements on Facebook can can change the regime, then um, something uh, something is seriously wrong. And, and perhaps you ought to be looking at that rather than the issue of external interference. And I think to a certain degree, the the uh, talk about interference is is a deflection. Um, which allows people to avoid considering um, internal problems, which they don't really want to deal with. As for collusion, I've seen no evidence of it at all. It, it's, it's a thoroughly unsubstantiated allegation. It's clearly being made for, for political purposes, but it has a whole bunch of people who, who truly believe in it, um, despite the lack of evidence. But um, I think they're going to have major problems making anything um, along those grounds. Uh, along those lines sticking simply because you know proof that Trump is a, an agent of the Russian state or has been taking instructions from the Russian state or has struck some deal with the Russian state in order to be elected the evidence is just not there along those lines I'd like to get your take on the media landscape and the information war you know we have one narrative produced uh, in Western media we have another narrative in you know Russian media such as RT and Sputnik and others and then you have online alternative media um, there have been recently reports of out of Britain this integrity initiative uh, we've seen Silicon Valley kind of you know meddle with the things Google and Facebook and algorithms um, there's the one of America's top psychologists uh, Brian Epstein has written about this and so how what are your tips, advice, and how should we decipher information, disinformation, and come to try to come to the most accurate assessments uh, of the state of affairs? I think what you need to do, um, what people need to do, is, is take information from uh, as broad a, a variety of sources as, as they possibly can, and to, to uh, consider where information is coming from, not take things at face value, and to clearly differentiate what they're receiving in terms of what is fact and what is what is commentary and, and analysis I, I think that the current atmosphere in both in both russia media atmosphere in both russia and the west is very bad there are strongly held positions which which dominate in in the medias of, of, of both sides which um don't allow for very much introspection 
um, or consideration of, of one's own side's uh, faults and are leading increasingly to, 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 to calls for uh, censorship, uh, suppression of so-called fake news, of, of outlets which you, you disapprove of because they uh, give opinions which you, you, you don't like and which you consider to be foreign propaganda and so on. And this is, I think, entirely the wrong way to go rather than you know, being, trying to suppress other points of view uh, uh, what one should be doing is seeking them out and, 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 you know, even when they turn out to be rubbish, well, at least, you know, you, you, you get a sense of what the other, the other guy is saying. Rather than trying to narrow what we're reading and what we're watching, we, we should be thinking in terms of, of, of widening it. Let's talk a little bit about the more dangerous aspects of U.S.-Russia relations. People, some people call, uh, say we are in a new Cold War. Uh, I believe Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said that we are not in a new Cold War. Uh, some people call it the colder war, Cold War 2.0. Um, we have NATO expansion. Now they're discussing adding uh, Bosnia, Montenegro, and Macedonia, as well as eventually Ukraine, I suppose. We have a new arms race, Russia developing these hypersonic missiles such as Avangarde. Well, um, what is your analysis from the security and defense aspect uh, regarding U.S. relation, U.S.-Russia relations and, you know, how, how dangerous is, is the situation? I know other academics such as Stephen Cohen have has said that it's worse than than the original Cold War. Well, I don't think it's, it's a Cold War in the sense of a, a global struggle for power like we had in the Cold War. I mean, the Cold War was, was, was very bad in many ways. We were, People were seriously worried about uh, a, a nuclear war, which I don't think most people are nowadays. And there were a large number of proxy wars which took place across the world in, in Latin America, in in, um, in Africa particularly, uh, um, in which the two blocs would, would support one side or another. And, and the, uh, if you look at statistics on international violence, it went up and up and up and up throughout the Cold War period up to about 1992, after which it, it, it declined. So the situation is not, is not like that. Uh, and, and I think Stephen Cohen is being a little bit too alarmist. Why it is bad is um, in what we've just been discussing, to some degree, in, in the media landscape and the, in the language and a certain, um, I'd say, increasingly paranoid and McCarthy-esque sort of atmosphere in which um, um, screams of, of disinformation and fake news and everything else are, are making it very difficult for reasoned debate to take place and, and a lot of uh, massive exaggeration about the scale of, of, of the threat from Russia is taking place. Uh, and that, that is disturbing. And in some respects, that is somewhat worse, actually, than, than I remember it being when I was young um, back in the 1980s. Uh, although I don't think it's yet reached the peak of, of, of you know, the, the McCarthy uh, committee and all that. Um, so so think, think, things, are not, things are not good. And in many ways, they're, they're quite depressing. But but I don't I don't think we're quite at you know where we were back in the Cold War. And what would you make of the recent uh, incident in the Black Sea and the Kerch Strait uh, with the naval ships uh, with Ukraine and Russia? Well, I think you know it's it's difficult to make a judgment on those things in the absence of, of all the evidence because what we have is different claims from both parties. And, and for someone like me sitting in Canada to assess, you know which claims are accurate is um, is very difficult. Um, I mean, what we know is that under international law, um, you have, the Ukrainians have a right of, of what's called um, 
peaceful transit, uh, uh, innocent passage uh, through territorial waters of other states. So that would that would allow um, Ukrainian ships to 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 transit through through Russian territorial waters. However, the international UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of Sea, also says that you know this right of innocent passage is dependent on obedience of local laws uh, required for safety of traffic, which allows, um, which in this particular circumstance means that Ukrainian ships transiting um, through Russian territorial waters in the area of the Kerch Straits ha have to obey um, the safety rules applied by the Russian Federation, which means um, stopping and, and asking for, for a, 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 a Russian pilot to take them through, through a very narrow channel there. Now, this is when we get into like issues of fact, you know, did the Ukrainians ask for that or, or, or did they not, right? And, and Ukraine said, yes, you know, we did everything right. And the Russians say no. And then one also gets into issues of, you know, proportional response. So so if if the Ukrainians were acting contrary to, to the rules because they did not ask for a pilot and stop and so on, was then the, the Russian response proportional? And that gets very subjective. So, so um, I think we, these issues are actually extremely complicated. And, and if I have, you know, anything to say on, on this whole issue of, you know, Ukraine and Russian Western relations is, is we need to, everybody should be aware that, you know, this isn't black and white. There are, you know, very complex things here. And we, we need to study shades of gray and nuances and, and actually pin down facts rather than just throwing accusations left, right and center, in which one side is right and one side is wrong. Uh, and it, it, it's purely black and white. So I've been asking a lot of questions and I'm wondering, um, for you, you know, having written numerous books on this, I think, uh, and you're writing, a, you have a forthcoming book, which you can tell us about uh, in a little bit. But what what do you find? What else have I missed? What do you find uh, important in this discussion or, or of interest, especially to you? Well, I think I, I, I would just sort of continue on from what I am just saying. And I, I think that, you know, there is a lot of hysteria. Um, at the moment about Russia. There's also in Russia, you know, a lot of hysteria uh, uh, about, the, about the West. There's a lot of um, people blaming each other. Um, there's a total lack of introspection really on, on both sides with people being willing to, to admit, you know, their own responsibility um, for what is going on and the fact that they have a share of the blame for it. And I think that, you know, if, if we're going to sort these things out, instead of blaming each other, we need to, we need to um, sort ourselves out first. I mean, that, that's, you know, sort of political statement from me. And to, in analytical terms, I'd say that I think we're in what international relations specialists would call a classic security dilemma. This is the kind of thing which you know, undergraduates learn about in, in almost their first week of uh, international relations classes in, in which, you know, uh, one, one state's uh, takes measures to defend itself against what it sees as, as a possible threat from another state, but then by taking measures to defend itself, it is seen as threatening by the other state, which then, of course, takes measures to defend itself, which are then seen as threatening by the other state, and you end up in, in, in a cycle of, of increasing suspicion uh, and increasing increasing tension. So we've we got to be very aware here when that, you know, things we do which we, we think we're doing for our own security and safety and are high and uh, totally defensive uh, are not likely to be seen that way by other parties and, and are therefore likely to to cause responses from them which which are are, are going to make things worse uh, and um 
I think instead of continually saying we need to do more about our defense and we need to do more about our security and we need to, you know, send more troops to Latvia or, or, or clamp down on disinformation and, and the Russians equivalent of it, um, both sides should be thinking more in terms of, OK, look, we've got a problem between us. How do we resolve it? You know, let's try and dial things down. Um, let's not be continually, you know, in, increasing arms expenditure, doing this, doing that, raising tensions, but thinking about how to dial things back. And I don't see a lot of that kind of thinking going on. In fact, we have a kind of problem right now where if you engage in that kind of thinking, then you're accused of being, you know, apologists for the other side. You know, you, you're forced to shut up. And, and, and that's very, very unhealthy. Since you were discussing this, um, where, where countries react uh, to certain events and it kind of leads to the chain, chain of events, chain reaction, I guess one of my final questions would be, uh, the Russian response as well to uh, economically, um, they've um, tried to become more self-sustainable, you know, in, in the agricultural area. They're looking now towards uh, China with the Belt and Road and the Eurasian project. And I think they just re recently purchased 25% of the yuan reserves in the whole world, uh, and they're looking to de-dollarize. And so I guess my final question would be, well, what are your thoughts on this shift it seems like Russia earlier had tried to work with the West, with Europe, uh, and to incorporate, but they were just met with this kind of wall, and so now they're looking east. Yeah, I mean, I think that from an economic point of view, these kind of measures are, are suboptimal. They're not um, what Russia would be doing in, you know, ideal free market conditions, right, and ideal political conditions. Uh, and therefore, there is inevitably going to be a ne negative effect on the Russian uh, economy because of this. Um, um, so, for instance, we see at the moment how the you know the Russian central bank is keeping interest rates pretty high, e even though inflation is very low, and it, it's doing this um, essentially in in order to uh, hedge its bets and to provide a, a degree of safety in case there's increased sanctions. Okay, because increased sanctions are likely to push inflationary pressures up. So uh, uh, the Russian government is like hoarding money, keeping interest rates high and, and so on in, in order to, 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 to be in a, in a safe con condition if, you know, really serious sanctions are then added. But of course, while that it, it provides you a safety net for, for the future in, in the short term, this is, you know, um, suppressing uh, economic activity and, and um, stopping economic growth. So I think this these kind of measures um to to uh, separate Russia to city you know a small degree not massively but to a small degree from the West are, are economically suboptimal. On the other hand, the Russian government clearly feels that from a, a political strategic point of view it, it has no no choice. Um, so I think therefore such such measures uh, will continue. Um, they will have a a not a massively but a mildly suppressive effect on on economic growth in, in Russia. But politically speaking, what they will do is they will gradually reduce the West's leverage on Russia. So by by sanctioning Russia and pressuring Russia, actually the West is putting itself in, in a position where it's losing its ability to, to, to pressure Russia in the future. It, it's shoving Russia um, further away from itself, which is actually not going to help us. So so these sanctions, you know, they don't help Russia, but, you know, they're not helping us in the West either. I, I just, you know, I just had a final thought or question. I was just a bit curious um, you're in Canada, and I was just wondering, have have you had any trouble? Because um, you 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 do seem kind of to question things a little bit more than the usual uh, academics, and and you have a fair approach. 
I mean, your blog is called Irrationality. And you, have you ever had any trouble uh, at the university or in academia w with anybody? Not, not in the university. University is fine. Um, there is, um, you do get accused by people of being, uh, you know, in the pay of the Kremlin or so on. Um, there's another, there's a report which has just been issued by a think tank here, which um, I don't really want to go into it for, for, for some legal reasons, but um, it, it could be considered uh, defamatory against a whole bunch of people here for, for taking uh, positions which are um, considered to be not sufficiently hostile to, to, to the Russian Federation. Um, so I'd say within academia, it was not a problem at all. Um, you know, and I get I get my stuff published in in, in, in academic you know peer reviewed journals and so on. I, I find academia academics are, are generally fairly open and sensible and, and, and balanced. I would say that the think tank world, um, politicians, the media is is a somewhat different issue. And so, could you tell us about your forthcoming book, if I'm not mistaken? Uh, you've mentioned it in some of your posts, and I think it deals with the Russian conservatism? Yeah, so this book is going to be a history of, of Russian conservatism from around 1800 up, up to, to the present day. So it, it will look at um, how Russian conservatism could be defined, what its origins are, um, what conservatives, um, be they... Uh, you might, what I might call state conservatives, official conservatives, or, or, or conservative philosophers, ha have thought and said um, over 200 years and try to track sort of um, what common themes one can draw out of this and what significance this has for uh, modern Russia as well. All right. I'll be looking forward uh, to that book. And how can people best follow you? I guess uh, is irrationality.wordpress.com? That, that is the place to go. So I R R U S S. I-A-N-A-L-I-T-Y, irrationality. Um, look that up and, and, and follow the blog, and that's, um, that's the way to go. Okay, and also to remind people, they can also subscribe to the American Committee for East-West Accord, where it's a daily email list all about U.S., Russia, and they include uh, stories from all perspectives, and I think they, they include most of your uh, postings there as well. And uh, again, we thank you, Dr. Robinson, for your time and, and the work that you do. Okay. Well, thank you.